Hi, my name is Tracy, and the Old Testament reading today is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 through 13. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading today is found in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. As a result... Those who had gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And Jesus replied, it isn't for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The word of the Lord. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this prayer that you've given us, and we ask now again on this Pentecost Sunday, come Holy Spirit, come and awaken us, come and illuminate your word to us, come and kindle the fire in our hearts again. Give us the power that we need to know you, to become one people before you, and to be on mission in the world. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Great to see lots of faces in the room that are just coming back for the first time. We're so grateful to have you back. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How do you like our new home? It's okay for now. We're going to be here most likely uh, through the whole summer, and we hope to be in Palmer in August, so stay tuned for that. But until further notice, let's uh, enjoy the non-squeaky chairs and the beautiful chandeliers and and, uh, all of that. Well, it is Pentecost Sunday, but it is also in the Packham household dance recital weekend. Uh, in fact, there was a so- Jonas had a soccer game yesterday and again this morning. By the way, last week he did score. Uh, <laughs> so the Lord heard our prayers, uh, <laughs> which was pretty cool. Um, but yesterday, Jane had three dance recitals. Today, Sophia and Nora have three. Tuesday, there'll be more. So, But actually, this is just sort of a typical kind of week in the life of our 
household. And for many of you with kids at home, you know what I'm talking about. Like you know how to precisely engineer the schedule so that there's, you know, someone coming at the right time and someone going and okay, this person will take the meat out of the freezer and then leave to go pick up that person and that person will pick up the other kids and they'll come home and then they'll cook the meat and then leave to get them again and on and on it goes. And it's like this delicate ecosystem where the slightest disruption could result in a catastrophic act, event. In fact, it's a joke in our household that when one of us gets sick, the first response is not sympathy. The first response is, so you're telling me you can't do carpool tonight? (laughs) I know you'll recover, but who's going to get Jane from the dance studio at six? And now sometimes when we come to church and we hear all these things being thrown at us about live this way and this is the prayer that we're praying, sometimes it can feel like our already busy and chaotic and hectic lives, someone is throwing another sort of thing that we're supposed to now juggle along with it. And this whole Lord's Prayer series can feel like maybe it was a trick. You're like, I thought this was a series about prayer, but as we've gone on, you're really talking about how I'm supposed to live differently. You're right. The series is called Praying with Jesus. And right out of the gate, week one, we said we're calling this Praying with Jesus because prayer in the Christian life is not a one-way street. It's not simply something we do and then expect a response back. Prayer is not like a game of chess where we do our move and then we wait for God's move. And if our move isn't good enough, then the move of God doesn't happen. Some of you grew up kind of thinking about prayer that way, that if we could just do the right thing, then God would move in a particular way that we want him. But prayer doesn't work like chess. Prayer, because we're praying with Jesus, is much more like diving into the immersive life of God, where the Holy Spirit fills us and teaches us to pray. And Jesus, our older brother, comes alongside of us and says, this is, these are my words, I'm going to make them good And the Father is glorified as we pray. And so in prayer, we're surrounded. But something happens as we pray with Jesus. Praying with Jesus is actually a way of becoming like Jesus. Praying with Jesus is actually a pathway to become like Jesus. And maybe you've picked up on that. And so by the time we've come here to week seven, the conclusion of this series, you're thinking, well, Glenn... That's all well and good, but now I just want to know who's going to make this prayer reality? Who will really make this prayer work? And there's a reason why in our world today, not just in the secular, unbelieving world, but even in the Christian world, we think of prayer as sort of this cute little ornamental thing that we do. And so we sort of say, well, yeah, yeah, no, I'll pray in the morning, but then I got to get to work. Well, that is true. But don't mistake prayer as just the sort of cute warm-up to the real work. And we come to the end of this prayer and we sort of have one foot out the door already before we can say amen. And we're like, okay, give us this day our daily bread. I, I better take care of that. And forgive us, well, maybe I can put more in the good column than in the bad column. And save us from the time of trial, well, maybe I need to. And there's this voice in our head that says, if I don't, it won't. You can't get sick because who's going to do carpool? If I don't, it won't. This prayer stuff is nice, but who's going to actually make this happen? How do we conclude for all the lofty things we've prayed in this prayer? How do we wrap it up? Is it on me? 
or is it on God? The last line of the Lord's Prayer is the one we're looking at today, the line that says, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. But this line actually wasn't in the prayer. The earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew don't have this line. Now, I know you're like, whoa, 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 what's going on? It's okay, it's okay. There are different, there, there are slight textual variances and all that, but our earliest manuscripts, the prayer ends with deliver us from the evil one. It was early Christians who began to add this extra few lines, kind of like Chris Tomlin adding an extra chorus to an old hymn. Or if you'd like Olivia Rodrigo sampling Taylor Swift in her new song. If you know, you know. If you've got teenagers, you know. But this addition to the Lord's Prayer was not an innovation. It actually comes from a prayer that David prayed. It's in 1 Chronicles 29. You heard it read this morning, verse 11 of 1 Chronicles 29, David says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. If we wanted to pick one phrase that sums it all up, it's that phrase, yours is the kingdom. And encapsulated in the phrase, yours is the kingdom, is power and glory and majesty and strength. All of it, God, it's yours. The whole kingdom is yours. But here's the thing. We have a problem. We have a problem with these words. If you really stop to maybe take off your churchy glasses and imagine how these words sound in the world today, these are not good words. We have an understandable aversion to these words because when you hear the word kingdom, you really hear empire. And you think about all the times kingdom of God language has been used to justify the slaughter of innocence, conquests, exploitation, dominion in Christ's name. And so kingdom, we're like, whoa, hang on, slow down, buddy. That's empire. Well, we don't do empire. In fact, we're trying to shake off this sort of colonialism thing. And then you hear the word power. <laughs> Boy, power. Who knows what to do with power? Power just makes us think about abuse. It makes us think of all the people who have gained power and leveraged it for their own good at someone else's expense. And we think about, yes, pastors and evangelists and seminary professors and we think about politicians and CEOs and Hollywood executives. And the last several years have seen a reckoning of power and its misuse in the world. So if we're praying yours is the power, I understand if someone who is not a Christian or maybe hasn't been in church in a long time says, hang on a minute, do, do we really want to talk like that? That sounds like empire and abuse. And then we get to the word glory. Well, that just sounds like narcissism. Glory? Like, what's up with this God that he needs all this glory? I mean, that sounds like, you know, either he's insecure or he's a narcissist. Like, I don't want this. And we have an understandable nervousness when we hear those words from the lips of King David because David, contra the Sunday school classes we heard, is not really a hero. I know, I know. You're like, whoa, David, the slingshot, the five stones, Goliath. I know, it's a great story, but keep reading. <laughs> Keep reading. This is a guy who had an uneasy relationship with his own throne and kingdom and empire. This is a guy who made good on 
the warning that Samuel gave in 1 Samuel 8. He says, be careful. If you get a king, all kings do is take. And in 1 Samuel 8, over and over again, the prophet says he takes, he takes, he takes, he takes. And the thing we know about David is that he took the wife of Uriah. That's power misused. Kingdom gone awry. Glory stained. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are no heroes in the Bible except for one Savior. We don't read the Bible looking for notable great men and women of faith. Abraham, the man of faith, the very first chapter that tells us about his calling tells about how he's lying about his wife. You're not meant to read the scriptures and find people to admire. You're meant to read the scriptures and find yourself in it and say, oh yeah, I'm kind of like that. And the moment I get a little bit of influence and power, I kind of am like David. And so when we hear the culture's suspicion to words like kingdom, power, and glory, we squirm because we know how we handle kingdom, power, and glory. But the Bible doesn't end with the story of David. It pushes us forward to look toward the son of David. And David might have prayed these words, but Jesus lived it. Jesus lived it. Jesus came and brought about a different kind of kingdom. Many people today are walking away from the church because all they've heard is a twisted version of kingdom, power, and glory. And I want to plead with you and your friends today. Before you walk away, ask yourself, is this a failure of the followers or is this a representation of what the kingdom actually is like? Because I would like to suggest to you that the kingdom looks like the king. The kingdom actually looks like the king. It doesn't look like we look sometimes. It doesn't look like our public voice sometimes. It doesn't look like our reputation sometimes. But the kingdom that we're praying about, that we're asking God to bring in, the kingdom that we're declaring is Jesus's, looks like Jesus. It actually looks like the king. And I want us to take a few moments and look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer is kind of wedged in between a chunk of teaching from Jesus that's organized in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to look at how just even, even in the Sermon on the Mount, kingdom, power, and glory get redefined, get reconfigured. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain, he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he taught them, saying, happy are people who are hopeless. Or in a more familiar translation, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now this would have been news to the Jewish listeners of Jesus' day. A Jew steeped in Deuteronomy 28 would have been taught to recognize that poverty is the curse and prosperity is the blessing. A Jew who had memorized the Proverbs would have been well-versed in this understanding that if someone was poor, you could kind of leave them whispering, saying, wonder what they did. And Jesus said, oh, no, 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 I'm going to flip the order of things. These people, these people are at the very center of the kingdom that I'm bringing. The kingdom, Jesus said, comes to the poor and the powerless. Every earthly kingdom on record is bad news for the marginalized. Every earthly kingdom is bad news for the marginalized. Some are better, are less bad news than others. That's true. But at some point, the poor get displaced for the sake of profits. The insignificant get ignored for the sake of expediency. 
with every chant of progress comes the alienation of someone who's weak. Gentrification in urban areas is such good news. It may not be good news for everybody. Jesus is the only one who brings a kingdom that actually becomes good news, not for the rich and powerful and the ones who are steady and secure. Jesus is the only one who ushers in a kingdom that's actually good news for the poor and the powerless. It's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing. And Luke, in his gospel, when he says the Sermon on the Mount teaching, he doesn't say poor in spirit. He just says poor. He wants you to feel the force of this. Jesus is bringing in a kingdom that unexpected people find themselves with seats of honor in it. That's why Jesus' half-brother James would say that. Don't go to church and give a special seat to the wealthy or the powerful. James is saying, don't do that because God doesn't do that. God gives the best seats to the lowest, to the unexpected. The kingdom actually belongs to the poor and the powerless. And then in Matthew 5, it goes on in verse 38. There's a long stretch here. Bear with me. Jesus starts taking Moses to a deeper level. And he says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. And if people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn your left cheek to them as well. And when they want, wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow to you. He's not talking about neighbors asking for an extra jug of milk. He's talking about Romans who are oppressing them. And he says you can break the cycle. Verse 43, you have heard it said that you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you. Therefore, just as your heavenly father is complete in showing love to everyone, so you also must be complete. Not only does kingdom get reconfigured as a kingdom that comes to the poor and the powerless, but power itself becomes reconfigured as strength for the good of others. Strength for the good of others. Now, when you read this text, it's so radical. It's radical because Jesus is saying, when you feel yourself pressed and pushed down, you can actually break the power of the oppressor by your spirit of non-retaliation. You can actually break the power of the oppressor by your spirit of non-retaliation. Now, I know it's awful quiet in this Baptist church this morning. (laughs) But every four years in America, we forget about the Sermon on the Mount. I've been a pastor for 21 years. Been around long enough to see it. Every four years, every election year, we're like, I don't know about the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Glenn, if they're going to resort to those tactics, then what are we going to do? We've got to fight fire with fire. I've heard it. Well, if the left is doing that, then the right needs to push back. Yeah, because that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount says. Man, you don't belong to the left or to the right. You belong to the kingdom of God, and it's time for the church to recognize that. It's time for us to recognize that. We've got to remember that this is Jesus redefining kingdom, Jesus redefining power. I just finished listening to the audiobook of the autobiography of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it's great because it, it's put together by the executors or the, the, the stewards of his estate and intellectual property, and they had to take some editorial liberties to put it all in the first person. But the audiobook is amazing because they have some rare, previously unreleased recordings of his speeches. 
So I'm at the gym and I'm listening to the you know, narrator read and the narrator's great and all of a sudden I'm listening to Dr. King. And it's incredible. And toward the end of his brief time on earth, he began to really have clarity about his convictions of nonviolence. It's not that he didn't have clarity before, but it was put to the test more in those final years in the 60s. And there were others who said, Dr. King, this isn't working. Every time you organize a march, we just get beat down. And don't you think it's time we hit back? And don't you think that, and there were others even within the black community that were suggesting other methods, but Dr. King understood where that was coming from, but could never himself lead that way. And he said, I will not be a leader who follows consensus. I'll be a leader who molds consensus. And he said in a couple times in some of his final speeches that nonviolence is itself power, but it is the good and right use of power. It's the power to break the cycle of vengeance. It's the power to break the cycle of retaliation and violence. It's the good and right use of power. Dr. King knew the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verse 1, it goes on. Jesus, right before giving us the Lord's Prayer, says, Be careful that you don't practice your religion in front of people to draw their attention. If you do, you will have no reward from, and say this phrase with me every time you see it underlined, from your Father who is in heaven. Whenever you give to the poor, don't blow your trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may get praise from people. I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you may give to the poor in secret. Say it with me. Your Father, who sees what you do in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people will see them. And I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. But when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father, who is present in that secret place Your Father, who sees what you do in secret, will reward you. Not only has Jesus redefined kingdom and redefined power, he's now redefining glory. The Greek and Roman imagination was that glory came from great feats. And that every young man growing up in that context would have said, the thing I need to do is achieve glory. That's how my name will echo This is how I will create a legacy. I've got to do something great. And Jesus says, you're you're wrong about that. The glory that comes from humans will fade. People will forget. People will forget. But the glory that comes from your Father, that goes on forever. Glory comes from your Father and not for others. Jesus is teaching us to think differently about kingdom, think differently about power, think differently about glory. Glory isn't from out there, it's from the Father in heaven. I know some of you are living in a particular way and you're like, Glenn, I'm not seeing it work. Nobody's patting me on the back for not doing that extra step that would have gotten a little bit more to the bottom line, but would have also been a little bit unfair to people. Nobody's saying, good job with that. Last night, the Nuggets lost terribly to the Blazers. I was devastated. Couldn't sleep. But our Argentinian point guard, Campazzo, told the truth to a referee. I mean, has that ever happened, Ben? I mean, the ref called it out on the other player, and Campazzo goes, no, no, it was actually out on me. And the commentators were like, who is this guy? Is he new around here? Like, 
Like nobody's patting him on the back. Listen, that's how you feel sometimes. You're walking through life. You're making the right choices. You're living the Jesus way. But nobody's giving you a ribbon at the end of the day. Nobody's saying, what a good Christian you are. (laughs) But your father sees. But your father sees. The glory comes from the Father. So now we return to our original question. Okay, okay. So the kingdom looks like the king, but who's going to bring it in? Who's going to bring this prayer to an amen? Who's going to bring this prayer to a close? Like, Glenn, all you're doing is adding more bowling pins for me to juggle now. Now i got to juggle this new way of thinking about power and kingdom and glory. And ah! I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this ending to the Lord's Prayer in the message. We want to know who's got this. (laughs) Eugene says, you're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're ablaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) There it is. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're ablaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. Not only does the kingdom look like the king, the kingdom belongs to the king. The kingdom belongs to the king. That means you and I don't actually bring in the kingdom. You and I don't actually hustle and make it work for our daily bread. You and I don't earn enough righteousness to warrant forgiveness. You and I don't live such careful lives that we avoid trials. It's Jesus. It's the Father. It's God who does all of this. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. Matthew's gospel makes a great point to emphasize that Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Theologians called this inaugurating the kingdom. Jesus was kicking it off. Jesus was bringing the inauguration of God's rule, God's reign here on earth. And every time he healed the sick or fed the hungry or forgave the sinner, he was saying, this is what the reign of God looks like. And we're welcome to join him in his work and we get to participate in this and we get to bear witness to the kingdom that's coming. But we are kingdom bearers and he's the kingdom bringer. And that's good news for us. When I was a lot younger, I used to have all this zeal to say, God, help us bring your kingdom here. And then you start to get older and you're like, there's no way we can do that. Like, I can't do that. I can't change this. I can barely change myself. And now we're saying, Lord, help us to bear witness to your kingdom arriving. But Jesus, you bring the kingdom. And that's why the Nicene Creed says in in the line about Jesus, it says, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. He brings it, and he brings it to completion. He brings it, and he brings it to to its completion. And we don't actually have the power to live this out. But Jesus does. But Jesus does. The end of Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. So go. Go in my name. And lo, I am with you always. He's foreshadowing the giving of the Spirit by which we receive power. We heard it read this morning, Acts 1.8. Wait for me so that you'll receive power. Now, let me just say the obvious. When God says, when Jesus says, wait to receive power, the implication is, you don't have it. I know, it's obvious. 
But if you need to wait for something, it means you don't got it. And can I just say, you know, we live in this, in this moment where, where there's a lot of chatter about self-talk that says that we're enough. And I understand there's a healthy version of that that's meant to kind of lift up our mental health and help us to not be, be you know, coward in shame. And there's a healthy version of that. But as Christians, I just want to say, you ought to be the freest people of all to, to confess your not-enoughness. Like, you don't have to chant to yourself, I am enough, I am enough. Actually, you can wake up every morning and say, I am not enough, but you are, Jesus. I don't got this, but you got this. I can't do this, but you can. The kingdom and the power is yours. The power is yours. The power is not mine, but it's yours. And guess what? I'm yours too. So you're, you've got me. You know, it's like, it's like helping... You know, someone helping you move, and they got the couch up the stairwell. And like, you got this, I got this. Oh, they're huffing, and all of a sudden, they're like, I don't got this. Kaboom. And you're like, dude, come on, man. It's not like you and Jesus lifting the couch together. You and Jesus bringing in the kingdom. It's like Jesus is bringing in the kingdom. And you're like, God, you got this? He's like, I got this. I've got this. The power is his. Not only is the kingdom his and the power his, but the glory is his. He will come again in glory. Our series last year in the book of Revelation, Jesus ablaze in beauty. He's the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's Jesus who deserves all the glory. So all that's left for us really is to say, amen. 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 That's, now we're ready to end the prayer. Now we're ready to say, okay, okay, amen. Let the people say, amen. Amen. Now it's interesting, amen is a Hebrew word. It shows up, Jesus uses it about 63 times. You may know this. The New Testament is written in Greek. Jesus, oftentimes some of his sayings are in Aramaic. But here this word, amen, is a Hebrew word. And Jesus just uses it, straight Hebrew word, just uses it in his talking, praying, living. And the early Christians, as Christianity spread from being a Jewish-centric movement to being a multi-ethnic movement because of the day of Pentecost, you had Gentiles, Greek-speaking believers who said, "Ah, come on, we, we, we can find a Greek word for this. We're Greeks. Let's find a Greek word for this, you know. Like my big fat Greek wedding. Sorry, I got all kinds of uh, rabbit trails I will not take. <laughs> it's a kimono. Anyway, okay. It's come from, yeah, okay. And so they say, they said, well, let's find this one. And they found one word, and the word meant, this is it. They found one Greek word for amen, and the word meant, that is not incorrect. Imagine praying, oh, Lord, come and show your power. Rescue Peter from prison in Jesus' name. That is not incorrect. <laughs> it's, just, I mean, it's kind of weak. So it's like, that, that's the wrong one. Can't use that one. And I found another Greek word. And the word roughly translated means, would that it were so. Or let it be. I wish it were true. Or, May it be. <laughs> let it be. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us this day our daily bread and rescue us from the devil. In Jesus' name, let it be. You're like, better. Still not. 
And finally, they decided we can't find a substitute for the Hebrew word amen because the Hebrew word amen is not let it be or may it be or would that it was so or that is not incorrect. The Hebrew word amen just means it is so. It is. It carries with it certainty and confidence. It's why Eugene Peterson, when paraphrasing it, just decided to say, yes, yes, yes. That's the best we can do with this word. None of you all know the Hebrew word for no. I said, what's the Hebrew word to say no? You're like, no clue. What's the Hebrew word for yes? Amen. You already know. You already know. This morning as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, I want to invite you to turn this over to the Father. You're, you're carrying burdens that you think are yours to carry. God, i got to live this way. God, i got to make sure that my life conforms to this prayer. No, that's the Holy Spirit's work. You just keep praying with Jesus. Keep praying with Jesus and you'll look up one day and say, I think I'm becoming a little bit more like him. And some of you are carrying burdens about your family or relationships with brothers or sisters or cousins or whatever it may be, or you're, you're thinking about a marriage strain, or you're thinking about a health issue, or you're thinking about a financial situation, and you're saying, this prayer thing is nice, but God, I've got to go, because if I don't, it won't. And this morning, what I want to say to you is the conclusion of the Lord's prayer is, it's yours, God. The situation I'm worried about, it's yours. The burden I'm carrying, it's yours. The hope that I have for my future, it's yours. The fears that I'm worried about, it's yours. And God, not just that, the kingdom, the power, the glory, it's yours, God. It's yours. So would you stand with me today?